0: Our Father in heaven, I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be here as our teacher. That you would help us to understand your Holy Bible correctly. That you would use that word to change us. And I ask for the gift of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paragraph. Yeah, that's on the first one. As a teacher, I do not use PowerPoint. Um, You can ask people if you know any that have heard me speak a number of times, and the chance of them having seen me use PowerPoint twice is very small. Tonight, we're only using it for three slides, and they're going to be using right at the beginning, and then we won't use it anymore. I'm curious how many of you have already read the three slides. I've been cycling them through for the last 20 minutes or... Okay, two of them. This is an entire article by Ellen White. The article is only four paragraphs long, and let's just read it together. Not that I'll be the only one reading out loud. I don't want to confuse you, all right? (laughs) At the transfiguration, Jesus was glorified by his Father. We hear him say, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Thus, before his betrayal and crucifixion, he was strengthened for his last dreadful sufferings. It's an interesting idea. I don't know if you've thought of it before, the connection between the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount Calvary, but there is a connection. Do you see it in the paragraph, the connection? That is that at the Transfiguration, Jesus was strengthened. And what was the value or the aim or the purpose of this strengthening? It's because Jesus was a frail human about to face a tremendous struggle, and he needed to have proper strength to face that struggle. Even for Jesus, he was never allowed to be tried with something that would be beyond his ability to deal with. Isn't that the promise that's made to us, that we'll have never a trouble or a temptation without a way of escape? So Jesus was strengthened. Second paragraph, as the members of the body of Christ approach the period of their last conflict, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, probably you know this, but the time of Jacob's trouble isn't the last period of earth's history. There's something after that, but after that, the issue for us is already determined. But this is the last, you might say, jeopardy that we face, the time of Jacob's trouble, As this happens, they will grow up into Christ and will partake largely of his spirit. As the third message swells to a loud cry and as great power and glory attends the closing work, the faithful people of God will partake of that glory. It is the latter rain which revives and strengthens them to pass through the time of trouble. Their faces will shine with the glory of that light which attends the third angel. Do you just sense there are so many ideas in that paragraph, you would need some time to unpack them? And this is why there's a reference, because we won't have time to do that tonight. But you can write it down. You can look it up. That beautiful Adventist pioneer library that Brother Bischoff mentioned, you can get it with all of Illinois' writings for $20. How could you invest money any better than that? I just so It's a blessing to me I use that material. What do I want you to notice here? I want you to notice that the latter rain is going to do for you and I what the Mount of Transfiguration did for Jesus. When the Mount of Transfiguration experience was over, Jesus was in the same nature that he was before. But he had been strengthened by that communion, that special experience with the Father. And when the latter rain has been poured on us, we're going to be in the same nature that we were before, but we will have been strengthened by the power of the Spirit. Do we need the strengthening? Yes. I guess the thought for you or for me or for us is that the latter rain isn't just for evangelism. I want the latter rain power to accompany what I do to win souls, but I need the latter rain power to accompany me in my last great struggle. Do you follow this idea? And God is willing to give the very strength that we need. Do you notice in this paragraph that the third angel's message and the loud cry have this relationship, that as the third angel's message gets louder and louder and louder, there comes a point when it becomes the same thing as the loud cry? Do you see that here? If you've ever wondered what the loud cry is, I hope you can see here that it's the third angel's message given with great power. If you want to be sure that you are part of the loud cry, I so recommend sharing the three angels' messages. In fact, I think if you did study on the three angels' messages, if you did your part to share them, there are a few things that you could do that would be more likely to preserve you or to inoculate you somehow to keep you from the fooleries and the fanaticisms and the strange ideas that are coming and will keep coming to the very end of time. There's nothing like doing the work that was given us to help us see what the work is. And when we're giving these three angels' messages, we're not nearly so likely, I think the word Ellen uses is liable, not nearly so liable to be led astray into false paths. I can say that simply another way. If I'm not giving the third angel's message and I don't experience the power of God working through that message, and then some other message comes that claims to be the loud cry message and it comes with some power from whatever source that power comes, I might think that it's the message because it has the power. But if I'd only been giving the right message, I would have experienced the right power. And I think I've said this thought enough. Do you see that the glory that I want to partake of is a glory that instead of being given to me is really given to a message? The glory is given to a message and if I give the message, I partake of the glory. We're going to go to the next. This is just the next paragraph in that four paragraph article. I saw that God would, in a wonderful manner, preserve his people through the time of trouble. You can say, as Jesus poured out his soul in agony in the garden, they will earnestly cry and agonize with him day and night for deliverance. I think from other reading that we are already agonizing with him. But we're agonizing with him now, we're agonizing that he will take the sin out of our lives, that he will purify us and make us clean people. But we're learning how to agonize, and when we learn it now, we're going to do it then. And what do we agonize for at this point? It's deliverance. What kind of deliverance? The decree will go forth that they must disregard the Sabbath of the fourth commandment and honor the first day or lose their lives. To disregard the Sabbath is the real violation of the fourth commandment there. To honor the first day is to cooperate with the violation of the thing. I feel like giving a history lecture here, but I know that it would stop me from the message I really ought to be giving tonight. But if you would check out what happened to our church in 1888 to 1893, you'll find out that many people misunderstood how to relate to Sunday laws. Adventists misunderstood And we related to Sunday laws with a type of defiance, even when those Sunday laws had nothing to do at all with how we treated Sabbath. That is, I don't think there ever has been a Sunday law in the United States that asked us to disregard the Sabbath. But there were Sunday laws that required us to abstain from work on Sunday. And some of our brethren had a spirit of defiance And I do some research, and what happened there, you'll find out that the spirit of defiance is not what God needs to defend his holy law. That, in fact, it troubles and mars the message, it muddies the waters, and makes it difficult for people to see that the real issue is the law of God. It makes it look much more like it's an issue of personalities and stubbornness, and stubbornness and holiness are not the same thing. I forgot where I was lose their lives, but they will not yield and will not yield and trample under their feet the Sabbath of the Lord and honor an institution of the papacy. Satan's host and wicked men will surround them and exalt over them because there will seem to be no way of escape for them. But in the midst of their revelry and triumph, there is a peal upon peal of the loudest thunder. The heavens have gathered blackness and are only illuminated by the blazing light and terrible glory from heaven as God utters his voice from his holy habitation. You realize by this point in the paragraph, our jeopardy spiritually is past. Already everything is okay for us. And now it's a time of retribution. The last of the four paragraphs. The foundations of the earth shake. Buildings totter and fall with a terrible crash. The sea boils like a pot, and the whole earth is in a terrible commotion. Ellen White has other statements about the buildings falling. And I, I don't know if I can't prove this to you, but I'll suggest it to you for your study. I don't think even one of those statements is about 9-11. I think that they are really pointing to this one right here, to the time when the Lord shakes terribly the earth. And when the Lord shakes terribly the earth, What's going to happen to many of the tall buildings? You know, they are going to fall, they are going to crash. If 9 11 was anything related to this, it would be that kind of heads up, a little thing to show what big things might be on the horizon. The captivity of the righteous is turned. That reminds me of Job 42. And with sweet and solemn whisperings, they say to each other, We are delivered. It is the voice of God. With solemn awe, they listen to the words of the voice. The wicked hear but understand not the words of the voice of God. They fear and tremble while the saints rejoice. Satan and his angels and wicked men who had been exalting that the the people of God were in their power, that they might destroy them from off the earth, witnessed the glory conferred upon those who have honored the holy law of God. They behold the faces of the righteous lighted up and reflecting the image of Jesus. Those who were eager to destroy the saints could not endure the glory resting upon the delivered ones and they fell like dead men to the earth. Satan and evil angels fled from the presence of the saints glorified. Their power to annoy them was gone forever. So we've just read through an entire article. And there's so much in it. What I'm speaking to you about tonight is the latter rain. And what this article started with was an idea that the latter rain has a purpose beyond the one that I at least think of most commonly. And maybe you think like me. How many of you typically have think of the latter rain in terms of power for evangelism? Is there others who have thought like that? Is there anyone here who typically thinks of it as, as we just read, as strength for the end of time? Is there anyone who already was thinking that way? Well, Okay. Uh, Not many hands went up either time. and I'm not going to ask if there are people here who don't think about the latter rain. (laughs) I didn't mean that to be funny, but I I I should know by experience that things I say like that come across funny. But Jeremiah 5 talks about thinking about the latter rain and indicates we should be thinking about it. We should. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Before we read it, I want to review with you the paragraph that was shared before the special music. It was a precious paragraph. In that paragraph, the latter rain, it sounds like the engine on a train. It's the engine, and it carries all other blessings behind it. Did you notice that in the paragraph? Almost like, suppose that what I want is I want to understand the Bible. That's what I really want most. I want to understand it. Is the latter reign relevant to understanding the Bible? Do you know it's the ultimate answer to understanding the Bible? To have the latter reign. Suppose what I really want to do is to have power to win and influence people for the gospel. That's what's most important to me. Is latter reign relevant to winning and influencing people? Is it? Why, it's exactly the thing that will do that. Suppose what I really want more than anything else is not to die in the seven last plagues. I mean, I don't want to be lost. Is the latter rain relevant to that issue? Why, it's the very thing I need to successfully meet my final trial, that ultimate trouble. It's as if if you have a great many spiritual blessings you want, yet you don't really have to like aim for all of them. You could, in fact, aim for one of them that brings every other one with it. And that would be the latter rain. Jeremiah chapter 3, and looking at verse 1. They say if a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Deuteronomy says he can't do that. Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. The first half is literal and the second half is an easy metaphor. You follow the whole thing, don't you? The Lord Jesus says that if a man divorces, in Deuteronomy this this type of divorce looks like it's a frivolous divorce. That is without biblical grounds. If he leaves his first wife because he likes someone else better and marries someone else, Can he decide later that, you know, actually the first one was better and go back? Deuteronomy says you can't experiment like that. I really think Deuteronomy said that to preserve this woman from that kind of experiment. So the husband has to think that if he really leaves this precious thing, it's not like he can come back to it. God says there was a value in the law, but that part of the law doesn't really illustrate the way I appeal to apostates. He said, in your case, you have gone after many lovers. As a people, you have been apostates. you've been unfaithful, not just once, but repeatedly, over and over and over. I know a lady personally right now, I just got to know her a month or two ago, whose husband was unfaithful to her over and over and over and over. And she didn't leave him. But she could have, couldn't she? She could have left him. And my father was that way with my mother, and she didn't leave him. And I'm glad for that. I think, I didn't know about my dad's unfaithfulness until after he was dead. I didn't, and that's a credit to my mom. Would you give her some credit for that, that I didn't know about that? I think that if my mom had done what she had a right to do and left my father, it would have made it less easy for me to grow up with stability in my life. I think it wouldn't have been a sin for her, but what she did made life easier for me and I appreciate that. What God says in Jeremiah chapter three is that he is willing to take back people who have gone the wrong way, who have resisted and been unfaithful and done that repeatedly. He says, you can come back anyway to me. Verse two, Lift up your eyes unto the high places and see where you have not been lying with. That is, in those days, they practiced idolatry on the high places. And this was explaining the metaphor of saying you can look all over and just see the simple evidence that you have been an apostasy. In the way you have sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your whoredoms and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there has been no latter rain. It's just one of many verses in the Bible that gives a hint at why the Bible uses the phrase latter rain for the final outpouring of the Spirit. The latter rain, the literal rain, latter rain in the time of Israel, was withheld here because the people were refusing to turn away from their wrongdoing they were going the wrong way and God was inviting them back and they weren't turning and to show them that they were not going the right way, he withheld the latter rain. In our church history, there have been people who have reasoned like this, that we rejected the Holy Spirit or the latter rain in 1888, but then in the next 10 or 15 years, one by one, the various leaders ended up accepting God's message and then the church grew with great power, and now we're going forward full steam ahead. There are a lot of books have been written like that. Would anyone testify that I'm telling the truth? That a lot of books have been written with this basic theme. There aren't many hands going up. I don't see what. There's at least three hands now. Uh, yeah, a number of books have been written like this. But listen, it can't be true. If it was true, then we would have already have had the latter rain. The fact that we haven't had the latter rain shows that some fundamental way we haven't dealt with the issues that prevented the latter rain. The last half of verse 3 is also helpful. And you have a whore's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. In the book of Revelation, there is an issue. The mark of the beast versus the seal of God. And what these things have in common is that both the mark of the beast and the seal of God can be lodged in the forehead. And we study the seal of God, and I want to tell you something more about the seal of God tonight. The seal of God, true or false, has a lot to do with the latter rain. It's true, and it has a lot to do. I just want you to catch this thing about the mark of the beast. What is a whore's forehead like? A whore because of the way she is, refuses to be, what does the verse say? She refuses to be ashamed. The problem with Babylon, I don't want to say the problem of Babylon isn't Babylon's sins. That would be a funny way to talk. Babylon's problem is sin. But when I talk about the hopeless problem of Babylon, the sins of Babylon aren't what make Babylon hopeless. It is that Babylon refuses to be ashamed. That's what makes Babylon hopeless, and that's what can make an Adventist case hopeless. Our case isn't hopeless because we sin. Our case is hopeless if we refuse to be ashamed. That would be preparing for the mark of the beast. I'm holding up a book. I just recommend somehow you get a hold of the book uh, deeper. I wrote it. And it feels like shameful to recommend you buy something I wrote. Except for irotics, I think you need it. <laughs> and um, let me tell you why I'm saying what I'm saying. I think that the final issue on the mark of the beast and the seal of God, we ought to understand this. I don't mean just that you ought to know that the seal of God has something to do with the Sabbath and the mark of the beast has to do with keeping Sunday. I mean, you ought to be able to take your Holy Bible and go to your neighbors and show them the truth about the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Now, that isn't quite as easy as you might think, because there is no verse in here that says the mark of the beast is. There's no verse like that. I think if you'll watch our evangelistic series, it might trouble you sometimes that they go Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, and when we get to the mark of the beast, it becomes. Catholic quotation study. But there is a lot of information in the Bible about the mark of the beast. There's a lot in the Bible about the seal of God. I just wanna tell you some of the objections you're going to meet likely if you try to study with studious people on this. The evangelicals think that we are just all washed up on the seal of God thing. Because we say the seal of God is connected to the Sabbath, but there's no verse in the Bible that says that the Sabbath is a seal. But the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being a sealing agent three times. It says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It says it plainly. And do you understand where they're coming from? If they think that we're all washed up on this issue? It's there. But there is a connection. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? It's to write the law in my heart. The Holy Spirit is the one that writes the law in the heart. That's why the Bible talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is the one that's doing that writing. And as the Spirit writes the law in my heart, that is the sealing process. Like Isaiah 8 says, seal the law among my disciples. Did you ever think about the story of Isaiah? He was that king that tried to unite church and state. I mean that he wasn't a priest, he was a king. He had that royal insignia, and yet what he really wanted to do when he was he was a spiritual man right up till he made this this problem. A spiritual man that began thinking that he wanted to partake in the sanctuary. And when he went into the sanctuary and tried to do the work of the priest, he was rebuked. And then how did God punish Uzziah? Do you know he had a leprosy in his forehead. That mark of death in his forehead was given to a man who tried to unite church and state. And isn't that a very interesting thing? That's the very thing that the beast is trying to do, to unite church and state in a way that God has forbidden. Anyway, I can't go We really aren't studying about the mark of the beast and the seal of God, but also we ought to understand the judgment. I think on this more Adventists have left, the, have left the church theologically. Most Adventists leave the church over sins, but those that leave theologically, most of them have left over the covenants or the issue of the investigative judgment. And there is a lot more information about the judgment in the Bible than we give the Bible credit for having. A lot more evidence in favor of our position. Let me just show you something maybe you haven't looked at. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation, chapter 6, and looking at verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, fifth seal, so this would be well into earth's history, but not at the very end. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So these people are martyrs. They are Christians that died victorious. Verse 10, And they cry with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So here we are looking at persons who have been martyred, and what is it that they are crying from under the altar? Do you know that's where the blood is poured in the sanctuary service? And do you remember the first martyr, what his blood did? It cried. And was it saying something similar to what these souls are saying? The blood of Abel cried for vengeance. That's why Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel's. Because the blood of Abel cries for vengeance. The blood of the martyrs cries for vengeance. Look at verse 11. And white robes were given unto every one of them white robes. These white robes weren't given to them while they were alive. These robes don't represent what happened when they gave their life to Jesus and were covered with that pardoning grace, that no condemnation, that righteousness by faith. Didn't they have that before they died? These were righteous people. They died. Now they're dead. Their blood's crying for vengeance. And now they're being given white robes. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season. Is this the resurrection when they get the white robe? No, they're still in the grave until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The fifth seal says that there is a judgment that happens not when you're converted, not when you die, not when you're resurrected, but in between times when you are given a white robe that is when your sins are blotted out and yet that is before the resurrection there's still some time to sleep if you are a martyr from the middle ages we're not even yet at the point where the final persecution happens do you see that there in the timing the after the white robe comes the time when there's the final martyrs the fifth seal agrees exactly with what adventists would expect the bible to say about the timing of the judgment I just mean there are a lo- there's a lot more data than we know. But we're studying about the latter rain, and that isn't about the latter rain. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 5. I'm remembering why I was telling you that. It's because I was telling you to buy the book. So you wonder where to buy the book. Four of you can get it at one of those booths tonight, but only four of you. The rest of you could get it from Layman Ministry News, lmn.org, or Orion Publishing, which is here in California somewhere, or those are enough places to get it. Jeremiah chapter 5. And looking at verse, I suppose it's 19. No, it's verse 2023. 20, But this people has a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, that gives rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserves unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Do you see in verse 24 some things that we should be thinking? I see in verse 24 that I should be thinking about the fact that I live in the end of this world's history. It should be on my my mind that God has allowed me to live at the time of the harvest. Not everyone gets to live at the harvest time. My grandparents didn't get to live at the harvest time. My grandmother is still alive. So maybe she gets to live at the harvest time. But God has reserved for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. And we should be thinking about that. Also, I should be thinking that this is the time to fear God. you see that in the verse? That matches the first angel's message. This is the time to fear God. When is the time to fear God? That's the time of the judgment. Fear God for the hour of his judgment is come. When you're being judged, is a good time to be reverential to the judge. Right? That's it. So we should be thinking about the fact that this is the time to fear God. It was always good to fear God, but now it is especially high time to fear God. And then the idea that he gives the early and latter rain. That's in the middle of that verse we just read. We should be thinking about the Holy Spirit. It is a problem with us that we don't think about the Holy Spirit. It is a problem that we don't give attention to that. The reason we don't give enough attention to good things is we give attention to so many other things. I don't think Facebook is a sin. I think maybe it might be useful to you even in evangelism. For me, I had to give it up. It took too much of my time. And I need to give attention to some very important things. There are things that are very important, and these things that are very important aren't as loud and beggarly as some less important things. They don't scream for attention. They're almost like quiet, polite, shy people that know just what I need to know. If I let the loud people get my attention, I'll never get to know it. I actually have to tell these people, excuse me, and (laughs) don't you have to do that with quiet people? And just ask. That's the way it is with truth. We have to go after it. And so I have to cut some things out of my life. That reminds me of another thought I wrote down to share. I'm not looking at my notes yet, so it's good that I think about it sermons are not like special musics. Maybe special musics aren't like special musics either because I think in this in the, in the special music that we just had, didn't you say we should be thinking about the words to the song? I think this is what you said. And if you were thinking about the words to the song, then the special music would not be for the purpose of pleasing you, but it would be at least part of the purpose would be for the purpose of you learning something or understanding or being blessed. But Ezekiel talks about sermons and special music. So have you read that in Ezekiel? And what Ezekiel said, what God says to Ezekiel, is that many people come to listen to you because they like to listen to you. Almost like someone goes to hear a musician. I work with audio verse, and this is the most fearful thing to me when I think about audio verse. I am fearful of raising AudioVerse junkies I mean people who like sermons, and they listen and listen and listen and listen, but their lives are not modifying in accordance or in proportion to the truths they're hearing. So, for example, when Brother Clark, I think it was yesterday, I have a hard time keeping track of days, but yesterday we were on a panel here, right? Was that yesterday? Or was that today? That was yesterday. We were on a panel here, and he said something about, in devotions, that you ought to do your devotions or have your experience before you get on the internet. You heard that. You remember that, those of you who are here, right? So this morning, I went downstairs and left my computer upstairs. I didn't stay in my room because my wife was sleeping, and so I go outside. I went downstairs, and I had my devotions somewhere quiet by myself away from my computer, That is, I want to practice what I hear. If I practice what I hear, then it is useful to me. If I don't practice what I hear, then it is worse than useless. It really, it creates a problem, right? And uh, I'm thinking now about the truth that the Day of Atonement is the time to put away your sins, I was just given a 10-minute warning, and I have a lot of verses left, all right, a lot, a lot of them. So I'm going to tell you what some of these things say about receiving the latter rain. Joel 2 says that you want to practice the Day of Atonement. It says, this is the time to rend your heart. This is the time to put away your sins, and this is the time to pray for your brethren. That's Joel 2:12 and 13 and verse 17. And when you practice these things, then Joel 2 says that then the Lord will pity his land. And that's the beginning of a blessing that ends with the latter rain. What do I do to receive the latter rain? I put away my sins and I pray for my brethren. I'm not telling you how to put away your sins because I have other verses to go to. But you can find that. This is what you do. But you know that that's what to do in the Day of Atonement. You already knew that probably. I don't think I'm informing you of this. If you aren't doing it, it's bad for you that you know it. It'd be worse for you if you didn't know it because then you don't even have a chance. But if you know it, then it's time to do it. Proverbs 1 says that when you turn at God's rebuke, He pours out His Spirit upon you. That's what Proverbs 1 says. Hosea 5, the last few verses of Hosea 5, they say that God sometimes lets you have a terrible experience and then He even backs away and just lets you go and deal with it all by yourself for this purpose, because you are are not inclined to seek after him if he gives you too much help. And so he lets you experience this hard time. He says in their affliction they will seek me early. That is the mind of God. What a tragedy if in our affliction we don't seek him early. That's the thing he's seeking for. Then chapter six continues the thought and it says let us follow on to know the Lord. If we follow on to know the Lord, we'll find that his coming is like the latter rain. He will come to us like that. It'll be like the morning as the sun comes up and gets brighter and brighter, as the third angel's message gets louder and louder, so we'll receive more and more of the Spirit and then there will be that outpouring. What are the conditions there? It's to take words and turn to the Lord and to follow on to know Him. Seeking to know the Lord, to understand His character more, this is really the way that you put away your sins most efficiently. It's by seeking to know him that you find out what your sins are. Hebrews 1 says that the reason that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows was because he hated iniquity and loved righteousness. This has to do with the way you talk. Practically, it means... I don't want to say that I love ice cream, but I'm choosing not to eat it. This would be a truth that would reflect my taste. But I'd rather have a truth that reflects my thinking. And so I'll say like this, I hate ice cream. It makes me sick. It ruins my day. It clouds my mind. Do I mean that it doesn't taste good to me? No. But I mean that I want to talk not as if I like iniquity, but I'm choosing not to do it. I want to hate iniquity. I want to cherish hatred for what is wrong and love for what is right. So if I know something is right, I don't want to talk as if it's just a terrible, difficult thing. I want to talk as if it's a privilege, as if it's amazing that God would even let me partake in his work. It really is incredible. And when we talk as if we love righteousness and hate iniquity, we're preparing ourselves to receive more of the Spirit into our experience. Luke 11 says that we ought to ask for good gifts from our Father. In the example, the only gifts that the child asks for are food. That is in Luke 11, the child doesn't ask for toys. I don't know if you ever noticed that. He asked for a fish. He asked for eggs. He's asking for bread. He's not asking for toys. And does a father know what to do when his son asks for food? The son gives good gifts to his... Did I say the son? The father gives good gifts to his son. That's the way Jesus illustrates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says the father knows what you need. Ask for the Holy Spirit and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, my brother Bischoff, just before this meeting, was reminding me of this truth in early writings. Not everyone that asks for the Holy Spirit receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And many people who ask for the Holy Spirit receive nothing more than demonic help. And it just ends up deluding them. Have you read that in early writings, how that happens? This is why, because the Spirit is guiding them into the truth about the... Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary. The Holy Spirit is guiding people into the truth about what Jesus is doing. He, what does it say in Malachi 3? He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. That is, he's taking the sin out of his people. He's doing that. And while he's putting away that sin, he is preparing his people to receive the Spirit. But if, if the work of Jesus is to sit and clean up his people, but we refuse to take part in the cleaning process, we can't really expect him to give us the the thing he's preparing us for. That was an awkward sentence, but you understood it, right? He's preparing us to receive the Spirit, and if we don't take part in the preparation, we're not gonna receive the Spirit. And this is why many persons in the world today, even tonight, are praying for the Holy Spirit, and they're receiving the experience of speaking in tongues and falling slain and it has nothing to do at all with the work of God, is because God has been leading them to put away their sins, and they're not doing it. I think better thing is just to review and close. Do that. To receive the early and the latter rain is really not a complicated business. God wants to give me more of his spirit so badly. He's willing and able He wants to. Really, the only problem is hindrances. There are hindrances in my life. And as soon as I get rid of a hindrance, that spot is filled with more of the Spirit. Really, it's an incremental thing. You can have more and more and more. The individual work is incremental, and you can have more of the Spirit today than you had yesterday. That Hebrews 1 passage said, Jesus had more of the Spirit than his brethren. That is, he was filled with the oil of gladness above his brethren. What do I do then? I follow on to know the Lord. I seek him quickly in affliction. I search my heart to put away sin. I am thinking about the fact that I live in the end of time. I'm thinking about the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking about the fact that I'm in the judgment, and this is the time to fear God. These things are part of what I'm doing. One last new thought, and we'll pray. Today, I went on an outreach. I was working with Josh. There's a lot of Josh's in this room. I learned that today. But I was working with one of them. And it was this one right here. I did the talking for the first half of our time out there. And Josh did it for the second half. During the first half, we met quite a few people that weren't interested. No surprise, right? we met one lady who really wanted to quit smoking it was very nice and another person who wanted to quit smoking and that was nice Or someone who wanted his mother to quit smoking and thought she wanted to too and probably it's true most smokers want to quit most do and a lady who wanted was interested in healthy to learn more about health i have a lot of background in door-to-door work i've been involved in that for 20-some years. And that's how it went as I knocked the doors for the first half. The first door that Joshua talked to was a man named Joe. Do you know what Joe wanted? Everything. Isn't that that what he said, everything? It was very clear what he said is everything is what he wanted. He wanted everything. And he gave everything in terms of the info. And and it was not a hesitation. I'm trying to tell you something about the latter rain. The church as a whole needs to be involved in outreach. And it's a a nasty trick of the devil to tell you that the people who really are skilled and knowledgeable are the ones that should do the outreach. Because outreach has nothing to do with skill. It has to do with God working through you. That's all involved. And you just go looking and God will help you find You seek and find, and suppose that everyone here and everyone everywhere goes seeking and we don't find anyone at all. Okay, but if we all work, we've just met one of the qualifications for receiving the latter rain, and then we have power, and then we'll reach hearts. If you want to know what to do in evangelism, the answer is do it. Find something to do, and God will work with you. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I am thankful to you for the way that you work with us. Even if you have to leave us alone for a while so that we would seek you, thank you for being someone that can be found. And I ask that you will finish the work that you've started, that you would find a way to finish us and make us like your son, Jesus. Fill us with your spirit even more tonight and more tomorrow and prepare us to be filled in that super measure of the latter rain. Strengthen us for our final conflict, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse